Thanks for listening to the show. Join us online at playvolutionhq.com and learn how to support the show at explorationsearlylearning.com slash support. Welcome to Renegade Rules. Kick back, settle in, and let us fill your ear holes with early learning information, wisdom, and advice. And now, here's Heather and Jeff. Welcome back to Renegade Rules. Jeff Johnson here with Heather Shoemaker. And on the phone with us, we've got Michael Gramling, author of, um, oh, oh, I don't have the book title in front of me. It's right up there. The, the, great, great, disconnect. the great Disconnect in Early Childhood Education. Um, I was looking at the subtitle, What We Know Versus What We Do. Um, we, we spent the last episode talking about this disconnect. Michael, I'm wondering how, how we go about getting more connected. Um, the listeners to this podcast tend to be early childhood professionals and parents. What can they be doing to maybe narrow this disconnect to make things better? Well, I think part of it is, is actually believing what we know. Uh, and maybe that's a lot of it. Um, that, that you trust the process. Uh, we, we, for example, uh, I talk about how um, we, we have faith, for example, in the science of nutrition. We know that if we have a child who's uh, obese, that we don't have to like weigh him daily, but we have to pay attention to, to what we provide the child. Um, Low-fat food, low-sugar low food, uh, plenty of opportunities for exercise, and we understand that if we give the child what he needs, then the obesity will most of the time take care of itself. We, we don't have that same faith, but the, the science of language and brain development is much the same if you pay attention to what you're providing, the experiences you're providing, and, and, and uh, quit trying to assess every second if the child has learned the next word. Uh, that's a start. Um, I talk a lot to folks about having actually human conversations. Um, so we're really good. We talked about this last week about uh, asking kids questions all the time. But we never, ever respond with anything about ourselves. We'll say, well, tell me about that. You know, tell me about your drawing. And the child says, oh, that's my family. And then we immediately, because we're just so programmed, so locked into that, ask the next question and the next question and the next question. Well, human beings don't talk like that, do they? Human beings actually uh, share their experiences uh-huh. with each other. Um, so one of the most concrete things I ask parents and teachers to do is if a child brings up something or you do ask a question and you get an answer, is just take a deep breath, stop, because I tell you, I watch lots of teachers and parents, and it is so ingrained, don't ask the next question say, yeah, that's your family, you know, in my family, and then tell a story about your family. Tell, tell something about your grandma or your own child or your own childhood, um, like you would if you were talking to uh, another adult. Sort of my rule of thumb is if you wouldn't say to an adult, don't say to a kid. Um, and that, that the experience of being talked to like a person is probably the thing that I try to drive home most times when I talk to folks talk to them like they're people, that, like they understand you, like they, uh, 
you know, like they they learn from our experiences, from watching us and from hearing us talk about it. So that's how they and they learn. learn quickly, too, what it's like to be interviewed by an adult because you can just hear in their voice that they're bored and they're just answering one-word answers to get out of the situation because it's kind of uncomfortable and annoying. And once you start to say something interesting, they're going to perk up and get engaged. It's um, You can tell through their body language and through their tone of voice that this is just not interesting to them because you're not you're not really interested the way you're having the conversation. So I think for those of us who are wondering, oh, my gosh, what am I going to say next? If you listen to how they're responding, you can tell that that kind of fake conversation really isn't doing it for them anyway. So why not take the risk and, and try something new and say, yeah, and my family had 25 cousins. Oh, you know, that's that's something they can say, oh, I only have two. <laughs> they can start to um, respond and, and, and have a conversation. I, I had this experience with my with my granddaughter over Christmas, and uh, I mean, they recently moved four and a half hours away, and and through her for her five and a half years before that, she was right next to me just about her whole life, and so I, I, I found myself doing this kind of quiz thing, asking her about this and about that, and and these kind of kind of questions about about the move, trying to trying to get a feeling for it, and and I, I caught myself doing it when I noticed I was getting these kind of very short, very uninterested answers and shifted the conversation to talking about what we were doing, which was playing a game of checkers in front of the fireplace. And then she just, her, her whole, her whole self, she just relaxed. And then the conversation got, got real again. And it, it is when you, when you pay attention to it, you can, you can, you, you just get this feel and and even even when we know better sometimes like i i try to um we fall back in that that habit of, of quizzing and questioning instead of having the real right. conversation and I think on telephones it's even even harder not to do that oh yeah um so having a real human conversation and and making it making it real is so important you know another thing i um from your book that you talk about of ways that we can change this great disconnect and how we can bridge our knowledge um, to the real world has to do with the whole dreaded area of lesson plans. Um, you know, I gave a, I gave a presentation um, last year sometime, and we were talking about free play and all kinds of things, and at the end of it, um, I was given a tour of all the lesson plans that they had up, drawn up on posters of exactly every week's unit and what the children, what the students would be studying, the three- and four-year-olds, you know, one unit on Superman and one unit on worms. And I was just aghast because everything I had said had fall, seemingly fallen on deaf ears. Um, but you have a, a, Michael, a did we lose suggestion you? for people who are trying to get out of this um, I think teachers feel it's a bit of a trap that they have to be accountable in some way because otherwise they'll get in trouble or the the school won't get funding. So they have to have some um, planning or accountability. But you have a scenario, I think these are fictional people, a principal and a teacher, who says instead of planning it all out ahead of time, take notes, be uh, record your observations, write down the things the kids say, and maybe take a picture of something the kids are doing. That shows the growth and development. It's, it's not a linear process, but it's a process. And 
So can you talk a little bit about this, kind of doing the lesson plans afterwards? I, I think we lost Michael. We're back. Yeah. Okay, we'll do a little bit of editing there. Um, <laughs> darn, <laughs> darn technology. So we're, we're, you want to pick it up, Heather? Yeah, I was just um, fascinated. In the end of your book, you're a very kind author. You just don't, you don't point out all the problems. You also give uh, realistic ideas of what people can do. And one of them is when people um, talk about lesson plans and how they can't have free play because they need to plan out their lessons. You're talking more about, um, well, make observations and take notes on what the kids are doing rather than um, making a structure ahead of time seeing what unfolds and then recording observations and that that can be uh, much more meaningful accountability than other types. Can you explain that a little bit, what people can do instead of um, ahead-of-time lesson plans? Yeah, sure. Um, I think what the, the problem with lesson plans, and again, we go back to accountability, is that they're reductionist. You know, we, we look at the smallest piece of information and we plan for it to happen. Uh, when we're much better off simply to pay attention to what kids say and do and record it in any number of ways. Uh, record it on your, on a, uh, you know, on a, on a tablet or record it on your phone. Just record it, write down what they say or do. Um, the example I think I, I put in my book is that I have a niece uh, who lives very far away from me. She's three now, but uh, she is a Facebook star. Uh, she shows up several times a day in photographs and videos I could do an entire developmental assessment on what she knows and what she can do uh, simply from those, you know, un unscripted videos. And I think that's the word that I, I like the best when I think about that is that unscripted interactions, interactions without an agenda, which is what a conversation is. Con conversations are contingent on what the other person says and does. And then unscripted recording of what they say and do with no agenda. I'm not writing this down to see how many colors you named. I'm just writing it down. And from that, then I can begin to draw from all of the things that we are so stressed about, uh, of the child's abilities. And you will find in one very short observation, all of those uh, domains that we are so scared about that they won't accomplish, they're there right in front of you. You just need to learn to recognize them. So yes, I'm all for that strategy. Um, it's also part of the interaction. Right? And it, isn't that always true? Uh, we take a picture of someone or we take a short video, and then what's the next thing we do? Well, we share it and we talk about it. So that in itself, the observation could also be part of a rich interaction simply by showing what we just observed. And that, that's... You know, it's funny because we do this also with ourselves, adult to adult. For example, yes. if I'm asked to speak somewhere, um, sometimes there's a form to fill out that says... Um, please list the exact learning objectives that will be achieved during your workshop. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, well, it depends who's there and where they're coming from. Because, and so I, I, I'll fill up the paper just because that's important. But, you know, it's, it's all ridiculous. And I'm waiting for those aha moments where someone will respond at their emotional level to something I say that, that will change their thinking about how they um, approach kids, and that's not that's not a something you can quantify and list in a in a teaching objective. Exactly, and you know what? But what, what I find interesting about that, and just anecdotally, 
and you can also do it quite systematically. I'm sure you know this. You do a presentation, you have talking points, and someone comes up to you during the break or after it and starts talking to you uh, very authentically and sometimes quite emotionally about something that you said. Um, and then you, what, what, you could not have predicted what they took from that that was valuable to them, that connected to how they saw the world and, and from their own experience. Um, and I think that's absolutely right. And, and I do the same thing. I, I fill out the objectives because you have to. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and we've inflicted on ourselves and we inflicted on the children. It's everywhere. <laughs> absolutely. Right. So that, yeah, that, and that, that's, what, that's what teaching to the test is, actually is to yeah. narrow it down to the Chinese objective and then work on the objective. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest strategies I talk about is just what you just said. Um, the, the other thing that I really try to help folks understand and is just how does an early childhood classroom run, right? And, and so much of it is dedicated to teaching lessons, moving around in groups, everybody doing the same thing at the same time. Um, and folks, when I talk about providing so much more choice and autonomy, they'll ask me, well, what does that look like, like seeing something from Mars? And so that's why uh, in my book I wrote two chapters about a classroom, right? This is what one looks like when it is very scheduled, uh, when it focuses on objectives, when one size fits all, when sitting down, listening, paying attention are valued. And then here is exactly what it looks like when we individualize and give kids a ton more choices, uh, and it's so much more relaxing to them, get so much more out of it. But I, I tried to paint a picture with words of what that classroom would look like. It, it those um, those classrooms are usually a lot more calm and relaxed and engaged than people who aren't used to them think they would look. I think a lot of people think that those kind of uh, classrooms that are structured for the needs of the individual are would be a lot more chaotic than than they actually are. Yeah, it's almost the opposite. In fact, the the preschool that I based most of my my books on, the the school for young children in Columbus, Ohio, they often take uh, particularly boys, but not always, but uh, yes. kids who are kicked out of other preschools or expelled, mm -hmm. and and they thrive there mm -hmm. at the School for Young Children because their needs are valued and their need maybe for motion or their need to do something different than the group. And suddenly, instead of being the bad kid, they are seen as the leader or as the one with all the great creative ideas, um, and they become the most popular student. So it, it, it depends what environment you give them, what trust you give them, with some limits so nobody gets hurt. But it's, it's amazing how there can be almost a complete turnaround with some of the kids who are not succeeding in a, in a highly organized structure versus one that, that values individual um, strengths and, and, and choices not to do necessarily what the group's doing at all times. Yeah, I think that is, that is so true. And when, when, when teachers here will give them choice most of the day throughout the day, right, they imagine bad choices. They imagine children you know, standing on the tables and leaping off the shelves and uh, hitting each other. But in fact, those boys that we're talking about, they they just want to do something different, <laughs> yeah. right? They don't necessarily want to, want to hurt somebody or break something, but they sure would rather be playing in the sand center than 
doing this repetitive task that everyone else is doing. Yeah, um, and, and if, if you don't want them jumping off the table, you you got to give them something to jump off of, because, I mean... It, it, yes. Uh, think about how much money is invested in all that equipment and all those activities in a, in, in a typical preschool classroom. And we spend most of the day telling them, no, it's not time for that now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you let them be where their temperament and interests and learning style uh, guides them, then they will go to one of those places and they will play constructively. And, and yes, there are rules. Now, this is a heresy, but I say it all the time. I'm even okay with telling kids no, right? Um, there's only one rule for the sand center, and that's just, no, you can't throw sand. Uh, I, you know, there's a thousand different good ways to play with it. There's one wrong way. Um, so kids have limits, and you can't throw dolls and blocks and jump off tables, but well, there's a ton of things you can do. No, Learning and, how to hear no and, and, and live with it is kind of a valuable skill. It's it's something that comes up in life, and if, if these little yeah. people are going to live another 70 or 80 years, it, it might be something good for them to learn how to deal with once in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, free play does not mean complete chaos and not having limits at all. I think sometimes people imagine if it's not highly structured, it'll be complete chaos and they'll feel, the adult will feel out of control and things will be wild. But really, um, you know, the, the golden rule that I talk about in my books is if it's not hurting people or property, it's okay. And that covers yes. nearly every situation. So the jumping off the table well, that could hurt the table, could hurt somebody, but the jumping motion can be welcomed. So saying yes yeah. is the idea, but maybe finding a different place to do it. Um, yeah. So much can be welcomed that way. I yeah, I, uh, in one of in my book, the It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, there's a chapter on group participation and not forcing kids to be part of group think and group do, and that kids yeah. have a right to, as long as they're not disrupting what the others are doing. They have a right to be themselves, whether they're at home or whether they're in a classroom setting, and to value that, that, it, that it's okay not to be peer pressured at a very young age by the adults and by the other kids. There may be a very good reason, either developmentally or some social fear or some legitimate something that a kid's worried about. That kid pushed me yesterday. No, I'm not going to hold hands with her. You know, there's something going on that is making them say no, and that's, that's something we can respect and make room for. Yes, uh, that is so true. I, I think about the, the notion, for example, of self-esteem. We're so hung up on self-esteem, and we spend so much time saying, oh, good job, good job, I like the way you did that. Oh, you're so smart. Um, that's, you know, self-esteem isn't, oh, I'm great at everything I touch. Then, you know, that's that's... More like narcissism, I think. I mm-hmm. think a child's self-esteem is saying to himself, "I belong here. I'm accepted for who I am." And how do you make that concrete? Well, it's not just words. Yeah, just like you said, we accept you for who you are. Because if you don't want to hold that kid's hand, you don't have to. And if you don't want to sit here and do this with us, there's at least 150 other things you could be doing right now would be appropriate and would uh, at the same time supporting your cognitive and emotional and language development, would it not? And, and that can be so darn empowering as a, as, a, as a little person or even as an adult to, to be given that freedom and control in your, in your life and your experiences. 
Yes, absolutely. So that's right. That's um, Who am I? Well, I'm this person. The one person I am is someone that can be trusted, someone who, who can uh, have a chance to decide what I want to do. Yeah, there's some self-esteem. Build some self-esteem right there. Hey, Michael, one thing I've been wondering about is a parent perspective on all of this. If you are a parent and you're walking into a classroom where your child is spending a good hunk of of their week and you're seeing a lot of this very rigid kind of structure, um, not a lot of focus on relationships and those kind of things, what can, what can you do? How do you advocate for a more playful, a more relationship-based um, interaction in that program for your child? Or do you, you, do you just take them out the door and try to find a different program, which isn't always an option. Yeah, I know. That's, isn't that something? Well, I, I think the parent and the supervisor are both in the same boat there, and that is that the teacher is going to work from what they understand children need, and they're also going to, going to operate sort of unconsciously based on who they are as individuals. So if you if you're observing a very controlling classroom, that's probably because the teacher has a very high need for control. <laughs> and, it, and it's really asking them a lot to just give up a little. They're, they're terrified that the first time I, I give a child a choice, then yes, my classroom will explode. Um, the, the, best, the best way I could say to approach that is uh, in a conversation who, uh, that values who the teacher is, and what her goals are, mm-hmm. uh, and and show appreciation for what the teacher is doing, and then you know ask kind of questions like, well, do you ever you know if I watch my child stand on his head and wrestle during a large group book reading, I might just ask this question after I've talked to the teacher and said, wow, that was a great book. I really appreciate that you know you spent time reading to these kids. Maybe I say, you know. Do you, do you ever read to them individually? Do you ever get a chance to do that? Because when I read to my child at home on my lap, um, you know, he really loves it, and we talk, and he gets so much out of it. Do you ever get a chance to do that? You know, that wasn't like saying you did it wrong, mm-hmm. and I need you to change, but it, it opens maybe a door where uh, I can I can begin to have that conversation about uh, trying to meet my child's needs. So parents uh, parents and staff having conversations like they're all people? Yes, 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 yes. And, and, and assuming that both of us want what's best, mm-hmm. right? That, that the teacher's operating from her understanding and we're operating from ours. And yes, exactly, have a conversation, look for that common ground. Yes, sir. So your book, Michael, The Great Disconnect, what we know versus what we do. I mean, that gap has just widened. I think um, you said earlier that that really it's an issue in, in many ways of trust because in the 70s when you were getting started with Head Start, um, there, was a lot, there was a lot less solid scientific research that backed up what everybody was doing, but people sort of had this fundamental trust that children's play was was good, it was how they learned, and, and we valued it. And now we know a lot more that that's true, but we're, <laughs> we're rushing in the opposite direction. So I think a lot of it is, you talked about having faith in the child and believing what we know. It's hard to make that leap, but I, I can't underestimate the importance of, of mentors who can guide teachers and, and parents 
um, towards that goal. And, and it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to see it happen magically in real life, to say, oh, this is how it works. And I just want to compliment you on your book because it's very well written and it's um, very um, – it brings – scenarios to life so that you can see the transformation from a rigid program into one because of a mentor, I think the principal in your case, um, in your fictional case, uh, yes. that transforms the program and you can see an alternate reality because seeing how something can work really opens people's eyes and helps us all to believe that, yes, it can work. So um, I just wanted to point that out, that some of it's just a leap of faith, and it can be hard to see a leap of faith unless you can see it with your own eyes, and your book really helps do that. That's what I was going for. I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, I think that's true. Seeing is believing. Uh, if you can just get somebody to put their toe in the water, you know, try one time to have a conversation rather than ask the next question and see what happens. Try one time to cease the power struggle and say, you know what, I think you'd be happier just building some blocks if you, you know, can not be disruptive. Go on and see what happens. See if the sky doesn't fall and then kind of take it from there. I think you're right. You really, it, to, to, to trust the process, you've got to try it out a few times and, and see that it actually does work. Excellent. And so, Michael, can you tell people where they can find your book and, and if you speak, um, how they can get in touch with you and that sort of thing? Sure. Yes. Uh -huh. um, I have a, a, a Facebook page uh, where the Great Disconnect resides, uh, so you can contact me directly. Um, and I'd love to talk to anybody about the book. Um, I'm uh, planning now... Uh, uh, a series of uh, visits to programs and to early childhood educators. And if anyone wants to contact me directly through my Facebook page, if you just type in The Great Disconnect, it's going to come up. Um, send me a message, and I will respond. Uh, the book's available uh, many places, uh, online, of course. Uh, the publisher is uh, Red Leaf Press, and, uh, you know, it's um, right in their catalog. It's on their online catalog. Um, and quite easy to purchase from them. And it's available just about where any place you can buy a book online. So, um, well, I want to thank you for adding your sane voice to the conversation. And my hope is that we can acknowledge this disconnect and make it smaller and smaller as time goes on, because the, the kids, um, the kids will thank us for it. <laughs> yes, they will. Yes, they will. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Heather. Well, thank you for joining us, Michael, and thank you for the conversation. This this has been the ex. Uh, this has been what I, I, well, I, there's so much stuff going on in my life. This has been a Renegade Rules. I always get the beginning right, but I forget the end. Um, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back soon with another episode. Go out there and have a real human-human conversation. They're delightful. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. And we are. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Music by Alexander Shoemaker. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.